Author and education advocate Mark Nason is the professor of history and African-American studies at Fordham University. And as a white man in that position, he has an unusual perspective on race. I talked to Mark at his home in East Hampton about his own awakening to these issues when he was a student in the 60s and how he sees the challenges of today in comparison to those times. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I grew up in Brooklyn um, in the 1950s, in a very unusual time in history, because two things were going on that were shaping my generation without realizing it. One was the integration of sports, Major League Baseball, professional basketball, and professional football, and the other was the rise of rock and roll. So as an athletic kid growing up in a working-class Brooklyn neighborhood, I naturally had athletic heroes who were black. You know, I try to catch balls like Willie Mays with a basket catch. I try to do a double-pump jump shot like Elgin Baylor. And because in the 50s, people didn't exactly talk about race with one another, I didn't think of, oh, Willie Mays is black, Mickey Mantle is white. I just thought these were people who did things in ways that I wanted to imitate because they were so startling and creative. Oh, that's so interesting. I've never thought about the fact of being completely colorblind as you did, were with that. I mean, yeah. I was with my music, but it's fascinating but it, it, that you're but saying that. But that was the time. People yeah. didn't talk about race in the media. You know, if you were a reporter covering the Dodgers, you were not allowed to talk about segregation in the hotels. Roger Kahn wrote a wonderful book about this called The Boys of Summer. So I grew up, you know, my neighborhood was maybe about 90% Jewish and Italian, 5% Irish, 5% black. My childhood group of playmates was multiracial, but we never talked about race. So we had those heroes in sports, but then there was rock and roll. You can't underestimate the power of this as it reached working class communities in a place like New York. Last night I was dreaming, dreamed about the H-bomb. Well, the bomber went off and the high was caught. I was the only man on the ground. There was a 13 women and only one man in town. 13 women and only one man in town. And as funny as it may be, the one and only man in town is me. With 13 women and me, the only man around. I had two gals every morning, seeing that I was well fed. And believe you me, one sweetened my tea, while another one buttered my bread. Two gals gave me my money, two gals made me my clothes. And another sweet thing bought me a diamond ring About 40 carats, I suppose Well, 13 women and only one man in town There was a 13 women and only one man in town It was something I can't forget Because I think of those 13 women, yeah Well, 13 women and only one man
And in the early 60s, people became more race conscious for two reasons. One, what you saw on television with the student sit-ins in North Carolina. But then black kids from Bedford-Stuyvesant were bussed into the local high school and there were fights. But I never thought of this as racial because I had gotten in fights all my life. And so this just was another you know, group of tough kids. Mm. So I grew up without racial resentments, you know, but everyone around me now was starting to become, you know, concerned. Oh my God, Brooklyn is becoming black. We have to get out. This started in the early 60s. And it was my parents who were normally liberal were suddenly starting to talk in Yiddish about the Schwarzes. You've heard that term. Of you course, know, yeah. uh, the are coming. And then, but it didn't affect me. So in 1962, I'm at Erasmus Hall High School. There's a chapter of the Congress of Racial Equality in the school. And it's mostly children of leftists. And it's mostly white kids in the honor classes where I was. And I went to my first demonstration, uh, which was uh, against Ebringer's Bakery, this wonderful bakery that discriminated against uh black people in their employment practices. They wouldn't hire them as drivers or as salespeople. And, and these stores were now in neighborhoods which were heavily black. So that was my first demonstration and my parents were enraged. So there's real tension between my parents and I over race issues by the time I'm a senior in high school. So I go off to Columbia. Some things started to reach me about the civil rights movement. There were two things about it. One is I read this book, Another Country by James Baldwin. Nobody ever talked about race. And all of a sudden I'm reading James Baldwin's book and I realize being black is very different. It's a shock when you hear and, that and first, so, right. And that was my first realization. I grew up with black kids as my friends, but because the discourse of the 50s in public was you, you try to ignore race, it never occurred to me that there was a whole level of experience that was that painful. What made you transition to want to teach about this? That's what's really interesting okay. to what, me, what, how you got to that point. Yeah, so... 1963, summer of 1963, I work at a basketball camp as a tennis pro. And I realized my, this life of just being an athlete is leaving me a little empty. And then I see the March on Washington and hear Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. And the first thing I do after I get back to school, I join the Congress of Racial Equality chapter at Columbia and I volunteer to do tutoring and tenant organizing in Harlem. It's in East Harlem. And one of the things that I see is when I go into this building with rats and is half of the apartments, these meticulously neat and well uh, decorated apartments of people keeping this incredible dignity in the middle of squalor. And it just challenged everything that people were saying about poor people and black people. And so I said, there's something, there's a disconnect here and I have to study it. So in my history courses, I start doing my research papers on African-American history. Now, remember, this is Columbia. There are very few black students. There's one black professor. There are no black history courses. There are no books by black authors. So 
I'm, as a, a junior in college, doing my research papers on African-American history with the encouragement of this wonderful professor, Walter Metzger. Then it's uh, the uh, like, I guess, October of my senior year, I go to a basketball team party and I start dancing with this absolutely beautiful black woman and the chemistry kicks in and we start seeing each other. And before I know it, I'm in love, but I can't tell my parents about it because I know what's going to happen. And they basically say, we'll never accept this. Mm. So this was the fundamental experience in my life when suddenly things which were academic suddenly became very, very real. I'm living this experience which is making me see race in all these new ways in terms of how much people have internalized how it's messed up people's heads in all kinds of ways. It's not just political. It's not just economic. It's deeply psychological. I've got to ask you, because I know what a fanatic jazz fan you are. What introduced you to jazz? Were you listening to jazz this time or were you still in your rock mode? Because okay. you talked about now, how much that I was, had an when influence. I start, when I went to Columbia... I was listening to John Coltrane. To oh, you or, were? To or, but I was taking my then girlfriends who were all white down to the village to go to the village vanguard and the village gate. And so was Coltrane your first jazz? Uh, no, first was Dave Brubeck.
I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I'm talking to my guest, author, historian, and education activist, Mark Nason, about his first introductions to jazz. Because your consciousness on a whole, on so many levels, was happening, were you thinking about that with the music like somebody like Miles, who was... Oh, absolutely. I was very influenced by soul music because, see, you know, most of the music at Columbia was Motown, you know, whether it was the basketball team parties or the mostly white parties uh, that that I went to, Uh, Marvin Gaye, The Supremes, The Temptations, even at the Upward Bound program, those kids, I still remember songs like The Tracks of My Tears, which I danced to, or The Temptations, and the kids teaching me how to move laterally. They laughed at me when they first saw me. The first time I worked in Upward Bound, um, which is the summer of 66, I thought of myself as a really good dancer, but I was going up and down. They had me move laterally with more hip motion and shoulder motion. So they schooled me. You know, and and that was kind of funny. And I after I added that to my repertoire. Uh, <laughs> well, I think in my experience, and I think it's a wonderful thing to talk about when we're talking about about race and acceptance, and uh, which jazz is certainly an epitome of that in bringing all these different influences mm-hmm. together. That my experiences, and I know because you and I know each other personally. Separate from this radio show, right. I should say that in full disclosure, we are right. tennis partners. Right. That I've I've had acceptance and and encouragement with that from the beginning of my career. When someone heard me play, it didn't. If they were white or black, it didn't matter. And I, I mean, I certainly don't don't know racism like somebody who's black. I'm not going to get that kind of prejudice, and I'm not saying that. But I love you're saying that these that these kids are teaching you how to dance. They, they're they laughing at you, but they're laughing with you yeah. because they're saying, here, this is how yeah. we do it or something like that. But there like are a that, couple of things. Which is wonderful. Yeah. Uh, the Upward Bound kids who, these were the first young people who I actually taught an African-American history course. They knew me as a counselor, as a division leader. They also knew me as a basketball player. And I was very good. I was also not your conventional white player as they perceived it, which is they had this image of white players who always were telling black kids how to play who and who were not that athletic. I could grab the rim from a standing position. The phrase white men can't jump did not apply to me. I was not an enormously skilled player because I was a tennis player, but I was very athletic. I could jump and I never told anybody what to do. So I got a lot of respect on the court. But it sounds to me, again, like it's a wonderful metaphor for for what we're all talking about, especially now with what go, is going on with the world, that, that if you don't come into a situation pontificating and telling people what to do when you don't know anything or without waiting to see what they know, this is a metaphor for everything. Exactly so. I... I can be a very arrogant person, but when it came to race, I knew I had to listen. Yeah, because you and I don't know. And learn. And that's what I learned from James Baldwin. Mm. So 
I was very open. For me, I listened a lot more than I talked, and I let my actions do the talking. Mm. I'm thinking also as you were talking about reading books that had such an effect on you. I know when I read Invisible Man, and I always, I hurt for people who don't read because a lot of people don't. And it's always, I'm always giving books to people and I, books like that, I can name oh, all oh the my important God. books that, to me too, just like see, you say that. See, this brings up the power of the autobiography of Malcolm X. Okay, I'm a counselor. It's the summer of 1966. I have six young people in my group and I'm, and one of them is just closed down. He's West Indian, he has a thick accent. The other kids are making fun of him. He's a little shy. He's a great soccer player, but this is a basketball culture. So I said, Kermit, and that's, I still remember his name. How would you like to read this book? I gave him the autobiography of Malcolm X, and it changed his life. All of a sudden, he becomes vibrant. He's talking. He's participating in class. It was amazing. And I've had that experience 30 years later with a young man I was coaching in baseball who had turned off school because he was living in a tough neighborhood. And at age 17, I gave him the book and it had the same effect. Mm. So I, I've experienced myself how a book can change your life. I've seen how books can do that. I think that it's so important to, to reach out, as I know you do, and what you're saying here, but I know that beyond because we've had these discussions. But I know you're reminding me, I did an interview recently that I was being interviewed. And the interviewer asked me what I wanted to say to his jazz listeners. And I said, and I'll say it here, that I said, well, you're already a jazz fan because you're listening to this. But think of your favorite jazz and what you think might be the most accessible and would bring people in and play that for people. You go out and do it because it's not on the radio easily accessible. Every jazz fan I've known has been played something. It usually, if it's after a certain era, they didn't hear it on the radio the first time. They heard it because someone played it to them. Mm -hmm. In your case, you got it from a relative. Other people do. And I say that. I, I put that on them the same way you give books because... It's easy to pick up People magazine. It's not as easy to pick up the autobiography of Malcolm X. You know, it's not there on the shelf when you're checking out of the 7-Eleven. So it's really important. I put that out in our conversation to people that are listening to, instead of gossiping about somebody, talk about your favorite book and recommend it to somebody or your favorite jazz or yeah. something like that. I know you're, I want to ask you because you talk, I haven't talked much on this show and I, you're giving me an opportunity to talk about jazz fusion and you're oh a big Herbie fan, Herbie Hancock. Oh, Herbie Hancock. So talk about okay, Herbie. Okay, so the music that was shaping the political world I was in was soul and funk. James Brown, Sly and the Family Stone. I love James Brown. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I got the feeling. Baby, baby, I got the feeling. You don't know what you do to me. Deep, heart, heavy, down in 
when people like Herbie Hancock and Miles Davis started picking up on this and fusing jazz with funk, whoa. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Thank you. 
I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Our show is made possible in part with generous support from Steinway & Sons and from East Hampton Indoor Tennis, eight indoor and 20 outdoor courts in a quiet, beautiful park-like setting. Visit ehit.ws for more information. For a schedule of upcoming programs, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can download podcasts of Jazz Inspired free on iTunes and email us at info at jazzinspired.com or visit us on Facebook and Twitter at Stride Queen. To find out more about my CDs and where I'm touring and to sign up for our email newsletter, visit judycarmichael.com. Additional support is provided by Jazz Times Magazine, providing entertaining and provocative coverage of the jazz scene since 1970. On the web at jazztimes.com. My guest, author and professor of history and African American studies at Fordham University, Mark Nason, remembers vividly his first jazz experiences and the cultural context around those moments. I love you describing sitting and listening to music together in that environment. That's small. There aren't a lot of people, which is very different from a rock concert. Oh, yeah. Where there's thousands of people, and it's really more about that collective energy, and you're moving, or you're talking, and now you're taking selfies, and you're recording. You're doing a lot of... You're talking about really listening together and having oh, a yeah. shared experience, oh, and no, it, which it, we don't have as much anymore. No, it, it was very deep. It is it, it, deep. It was, it was, I still remember when this guy, Al, brought Les McCann compared to what? You know, back from Montrose and put that on. And man, just the way, it's like how I saw the world in that song. And then here we are, we're breaking every rule. I mean, here. I mean, God, no. I, mean, I don't want to even... I don't know well, what no, this but you're of, there, but it's just... I'm there, and it's this music is the perfect soundtrack to the way we are reinventing race.
I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. My guest, author Mark Nason, has written numerous books and articles on black history and race issues, and is presently the professor of history and African-American studies at Fordham University. I asked him how he, a white Jewish man from Brooklyn, first got that position. Spring of 1970, my fellowship money is running out, so I need to apply for jobs. By this time, I've passed my laurels, so I'm, you know, what the day they call ABD, or I have left as a dissertation. Um, so um, I'm playing basketball in Riverside Park with this Irish kid from um, Inwood, Upper Manhattan, and I kind of take it under my wing. I like ado- like to adopt teenagers, you know, that's part my, my girlfriend did, I like to. And he was somebody who grew up in a kind of racist family who I got to the point where he was taking African-American history courses at Fordham. And he says, my professor said they're looking for another professor. So I write a letter. I have all these interviews at community colleges to teaching introductory Western Civ or American history. I could do it, all these crew cut male faculty and, you know, there's me. So I write a letter that says, first of all, I am white. And if that excludes me, I understand. But if you're still interested, I've written this and I've taught African-American history. I love doing this. To my utter shock, I'm called for an interview. (laughs) And I'm asked, what do you want to teach? Within that? No, no. They said... I, they didn't say, you're going to teach Western Civ, you're going to teach African. And so I make up three courses on the spot. Oh. History of American racism, history of black protest, African-Americans in the labor movement. To my utter astonishment, I'm hired. Now, I don't know at the time, I am the first white person in the United States hired by a black studies program at Fordham University. Now, remember, I've been kicked out of my family. I'm living in a black family. You know, I teach African-American history. I do research in African-American history. Um, So I say, hell, I'd rather do this than teach Western Civ. Now, I know there are going to be people who are going to hate the fact that they hired me. You know, because that comes with the territory. But I also figured I'm going to be teaching what I want 
And maybe, just maybe, this is going to work. So it kind of does. You know, first thing I do when I get there, because this is, again, this male bonding that crosses racial lines that goes through sports. The first thing I do is head to the gym to start working out with the Fordham basketball team, which is mostly black and which ends up being their championship team. Now, again, I'm not a great player, but I can run with anybody and jump with anybody. Well, and you show up. And I hate to put it that way, but a lot of it's showing up and to have the courage yeah. to so be there I with could those hang. People. I wasn't going to be great there, but I was going to hang with them. And you're a professor? And you, you're above the rim. Whoa. So I had my first little constituency. And do, do it isn't just black students that take this course. Oh, no, no. You get well, here's the white. thing is, my history of American racism was 85% white. But remember, Good. Yeah, but there was an... And that department knew, that program knew, that if they didn't get white students to take the courses, they were not going to survive. The program was created as a result of a sit-in where a dean had a heart attack. (laughs) It wasn't a severe one. So they created the program. (laughs) Is he still with us? No, yeah, as far as I know. (laughs) But so, you know, I I was the only white person there. It was all graduate students. We were inventing a whole field. So, but here's another jazz story. There's an undergraduate student... And so guess what our weekly ritual was? Driving to the only McDonald's in the Bronx, listening to Pharaoh Sanders on the tape deck. of my bonding experience there's a jazz weed bonding and there's a basketball bonding but ultimately i had to earn it in the classroom well i think that's the case everywhere it's what we say as jazz musicians you have to earn it on the bandstand yeah so was i were my classes going to get people excited was i going to be seen as an arrogant white guy who thought he knew everything so again my method was primary sources student debate student voices and somehow it kind of got around that these classes were not only fun they were empowering plus i played music in them this is something i I was looking forward to asking you because i know when i got in the business when i started and i didn't know who count basie was i didn't know who sarah vaughn was i didn't know i mean i was a teenager and I would, my parents weren't big jazz fans, but they would talk about the music they grew up with, which happened to be jazz. And uh, of course, they knew who Count Basie was and things like that. But I would hear about these people, and in my case, get to meet some of them. And then my parents would say, oh, yes, I remember we danced to Basie or whatever. 
But what I did notice, especially when I came east and I, I met a broader range of people, I would meet my contemporaries who then were in their 20s. And if they were black, they knew all those people. If I said Sarah Vaughan and I asked a fellow 25-year-old and they were white and they weren't a musician, chances are they'd never heard of Sarah Vaughan. Right. If I asked a 25-year-old black person, they knew who Sarah Vaughan was. Right. I don't find that to be the case now. That, that they'll know who Beyonce is. But um, my point is, is that I met, they seem to know um, the blacks that I met personally would know the full range of the people of their race who had, who had done well and who had, well, in Sarah's case, done spectacularly well. Is that the case now? Do you find that these kids know who these people are? Do they I, know I, the one, the great jazz musicians? I, I think there is not a great historical knowledge, unless you're in a, taking courses in a department like mine, uh, where all the professors feel, whether you're teaching history or literature, the musical tradition has to be explained and described and unveiled. Ah, okay. So, like, if I'm teaching an African-American history course, you're going to listen to Fats Waller. Mm -hmm. You're going to listen to Bessie Smith. You know, you're going to listen to Miles Davis. So it's great. So I'm, I say it because I felt it was, when I discovered this more recently, I felt it was a real shame because I came to these people and realized how important they were culturally, yeah. not just because... When I heard Earl Hines, I thought, oh my gosh, this is great music. I knew what he meant in the fabric of American history. Yeah. And I, in fact, relatively recently found out that Freddie Green was an activist, was a real social activist, yeah. which I didn't realize. But, but we have to remember, we're now living in this test-mad world where the arts are de-emphasized and history is de-emphasized. So history is de-emphasized as well. Absolutely. I actually became an education activist because I was doing community history projects in 20 different Bronx schools from 2003 to 2007, and they were all pushed out mm. when they started rating the schools on the basis of student test scores. So what is emphasized if arts, history, and athletics aren't... Uh, no, I know college athletics okay. still is if it's going to bring yeah, no, money. No, but, no, but the thing, what you're emphasizing in schools now is, is ELA... Literacy and math, in the, in the narrowest sense, pass the tests. They're bubble tests. And if you don't pass the tests, your school could be closed. Your teachers could be fired. And this is particularly true in high-poverty schools with large numbers of students of color. And it just casts a pall on this. I mean, I had the most amazing music, you know, music history programs in Bronx schools because... When we started our Bronx African-American History Project, we uncovered a lost jazz scene in the Bronx that nobody knew about. And so I would, I would say, okay, here, before you had hip-hop, which you all know, you had Latin music, you had jazz, you had funk. And you talk about and the I connection And I, not only that. that, I'd play the songs for them. So I'd start with Tito Puente. Then I'd play, um, you know, uh, Thelonious Monk.
then I'd play Lou Donaldson, then I'd play Eddie Palmieri. And all say, these are all from the Bronx. They're all from the same neighborhoods. You should be proud of where you come from, you know, which was the message. And the kids loved it. Mm. And then I'd segue into rhythm and blues and hip hop. Um, and then, you know, talk about contemporary Latin jazz artists like Bobby Sanabria, who comes out of the Bronx, or uh, Valerie Capers. And Whose father was a stride pianist. Did mm-hmm. she ever tell you that? No. Yep. Uh, and then, uh, my favorite story, which I would tell them, is uh, how Mongo Santa Maria got uh, to make Watermelon Man his greatest hit. And here's the story. Herbie Hancock and uh, is living in the Bronx with Donald Byrd in an apartment on 164th Street and Boston Road. Donald Byrd is a music teacher at Wagner Junior High School. And guess who one of his favorite students was? Willie Colon. <laughs> okay, this I all found out, you know, which nobody had known about doing her research. So anyway, Mongo Santa Maria, his piano player gets sick. He's at this little club called Club Cubano into Americano on Prospect Avenue and 160th Street. He calls Herbie Hancock up and says, can you sit in? He says, I've never played Latin music. And Mongo says, just, you know, you'll wing it. So he's, you know, doing his thing and it's like, it's break. And Donald Byrd comes, Herbie, why don't you play Watermelon Man from Mongo? So he starts playing it and Mongo's ensemble with all the percussion starts chip you know, coming in, the people in the club go crazy and Mongo asks if he can record it. Uh. And that's, it's his legendary song.
I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. My guest is educator, activist, author Mark Mason. Mark is frustrated by the lack of support for the arts and the ending of his own popular arts outreach programs. They love these programs, but they pushed them out because they said, look, you know how many schools in New York were closed under Michael Bloomberg? 168. And when it closed, half the faculty is removed. But it casts a pall over education, the fear. You can't spend two months doing an arts program. You can't even have recess. The no, I know. That's what I meant. If so they're taking all the fun. If you don't they're get take, I yeah. mean, what would have happened to you and me? Because I'm a sports maniac and a music and art maniac. Oh, my God. No, no. That I was what I I, my whole day was waiting to get outside and play baseball. No, no. That was me. <laughs> it was recess, gym. Yeah. Um, you know, I was in the school band. Yeah. Um, I wasn't very good. I was in the audiovisual squad showing no, movies. No, me too, my whole day. I was also on the safety patrol. Can you imagine me as a crossing guard? Well, actually, I can. I'm looking at you, <laughs> folks. This is a man you'd pay attention to. <laughs> so all these things, I would have got... Today, they would have classified me as ODD, Oppositional Defiance Disorder. No, I would have been... been what's the one if you're too ADHD. I would have been the... Yeah, you that see, they would have given me pills. I paid perfect attention, but I used it to harass the teachers and you know, the students. <laughs> Uh, so I would have been drugged. Uh, they, but, but I would have been drugged. Yeah. I would have been because so I was doing it in a few languages too. Right. So I'd be cheeky, and then they'd want to give me a bad grade, but they couldn't. Right. <laughs> no, but the point is, it's it's a tremendous tragedy what is going on in public education because of the testing and pushing out the arts and pushing out history. And it's my mission to try to bring it back. Well, we should finish because we're, we're, we're zooming through our time. We should finish with talking about the badass teacher. Okay. Teachers and here's So here I am. I started writing about what was going on in the Bronx. And, and along with the closing of the schools and the pushing out of the arts, they started to blame teachers for failing schools and low test scores and demonize teachers as if they were the main culprits in growing poverty and inequality. So I wrote this piece called In Defense of Public School Teachers, which I kind of posted, and it went viral. So, And a lot of teachers started saying to me, Mark, we don't have free speech. You do. You're a professor. You can say whatever ah, you want. So I became a sort of spokesperson for teachers. Mm. And then in the spring of 2013, the the testing in New York State suddenly, what they were doing in the Bronx, suddenly spread through the whole state with these common core tests. And everybody's traumatized. So all of a sudden, I'm invited to Long Island and the Hudson Valley to talk about the damage of testing. And we have the biggest test revolt then. At that time, it's 30,000 people. This year, it's 200,000. So we start, I, I met all of these people. We started a group called the Badass Parents Association because a lot of the resistance was from parents. Then as a joke, we said, why don't we form something called the Badass Teachers Association? And teachers around the country were so angry that it started getting a thousand people a week. And it became this incredible mass movement that got 50,000 teachers in a year. Who said, I remember. We've had enough. And so we had a march on Washington. We had a meeting at the Department of Education where they said, we know we're doing everything wrong, but we can't change. Oh. Um, 
So well, that sadly sounds like Washington. Yeah. What they're I saying mean, about a lot of things. Here's the thing: is they 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 are convinced that the only way that you will teach kids in poverty is if you have constant testing and a database to hold people accountable. But the collateral damage is so much worse than the gains. What happens when you push out the arts? What happens when you push out history? What happens when you turn recess into test prep? You're making the kids who need to love school the most hate it, and you're magnifying the test score gap. Mm, mm. And I call this policy for other people's children because the politicians who are making these policies are sending their kids to private school, which have small classes, plenty of arts, plenty of plenty sports, of courts, you know, plenty of school trips, creative teaching. So what you're doing is making everything that you're trying to improve worse. And I've been calling the alarm on this. And do you think this is a time that that perhaps, like this is the Pollyanna in me always looking for the positive, uh, well, always being hopeful. We're in a particularly difficult time with things coming to a head right now. Do you think that there's a little bit of a window that maybe that... Yes, I think there's a window with the Black Lives Matter movement and the opt-out movement. People are saying there's something really wrong. Mm -hmm. We have too many very wealthy people mm -hmm. running this country and telling everybody else what to do. So we need to hear the voices of people on the ground. Mm -hmm. What do they want? What do they need? We have to believe that every child has all this talent. We can't put them into a box. We can't put them into a bubble. We can't make them college and career ready when they're in pre-K and should be playing. Mm. Play, imagination, dreaming. That has to be part of children's experience. I love to see people stretch themselves artistically and, you know, you're doing it. So. Well, and that's that's what we all should be doing is just going through life and and continuing to be creative and reinventing ourselves, which is just what you're saying that we want to keep reinforcing with kids yeah. because because they, they're that way naturally. They certainly are. We and take that away from them we if we don't. We take that away from yeah. them. We're making them college and career ready at three and four. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. When they should be having more fun. We should be having more fun. Yeah. Well, you and I do have a we lot have of fun. We have a lot of fun. <laughs> I mean, nobody can make me not have fun. No, exactly. Mark, this is great. Thank you for taking the time for this. Well, thank you for having me talk about these things, which I haven't really talked about you know, for a long time. Well, or, and, and not at all in, the, in this way connected to music. So thank you, Judy. Thank you. You've been listening to author Mark Nason. I hope you'll join me here next time when I talk with another creative person about how jazz has inspired their life and work. I'm Judy Carmichael, the host and producer of Jazz Inspired. My production engineer is Curtis Heidolf. You can download podcasts of Jazz Inspired from iTunes or at TalkShoe.com. Our opening music was Airmail Special, and the mid-break music is a smooth one from my CD, High on Fats and Other Stuff. The closing music is Old Fashioned Love from my CD Trio. I'm on piano with my Cashamon sax and Chris Laurie on guitar. For a schedule of upcoming programs, to sign up for our email newsletter 
Or to find out how you can personally support Jazz Inspired, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can email us at info at jazzinspired.com or visit us on Facebook and Twitter. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is made possible with generous support from our listeners and Steinway and & Sons and Sag Harbor Forest. Visit sagharborforest.net. Additional support is provided by the American Hotel in Sag Harbor, New York. Learn more at theamericanhotel.com. <laughs>